You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hello, please let me see your ticket stubs for the Double Edge Double Bill. Tonight, we watch as DC Comics lets Joker do his swamp thing. Each week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let's let the chaos all begin, baby. And I am Adam, the king of comedy, taxi driver, joker, Thomas. And I am Thomas Mariani. And Adam, what do you get when you cross a mentally ill loner with a society that treats him like dirt? You get this podcast. Yeah, it's pretty accurate. Um, and we're not the only ones here, Adam, uh, because we have another guest coming in. Uh, most of you who've listened to this podcast before know him as Tori DePina, but I got a card before the show that said uh, we're supposed to introduce him a different way. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Joker. Oh, man, look at him dancing. What's going on there, Tom May? No, it was Jacker. Yeah, oh, I'm sorry, yes, it's, it's, a, it's a typo. Yes, Jacker, yes. Yeah, he masturbates a lot. Oh, boy. <laughs> throwing, all my, throwing all my demons out there. Jesus Christ. Yeah. <laughs> well, this intro ended up as funny as an Arthur Fleck stand-up routine. Tori, welcome back to the show. It's your fourth time, and I'm really happy to have you back. It's been a little bit. Yeah, it definitely has been, uh, say about, a, yeah, about a year, so I'm uh, happy to be here again. And you are here uh, because uh, we're celebrating in honor of Birds of Prey will be coming out the week this is dropping. Uh, we're doing another double feature of DC Comics movies. Uh, last time, we did that back in episode 33 or so with uh, another recurring guest, uh, Scott Johnson. Uh, we talked about two Batman movies, uh, and uh, we decided to avoid that this time intentionally. Uh, technically, because there's no Batman in either of our movies, um, and whatever references there are are very small and almost superfluous to the entire film. If you're new to the show, each week Adam and I um, have two picks that are picked at the end of the previous episode that we discuss. One is a good pick, one is a bad pick, and uh, at the end of every episode we do this thing where um, each of us either has two good or two bad movies, and we decide randomly which will be the good feature and which will be the bad feature for our double feature for every show. And uh, Tori, well, when we invited you back on, we sent you a list of topics and you were keen to come on for a DC. Why a DC in particular? It's like a mixed history with uh, with this universe, because I mean, like, you know, we all grew up watching, um, you know, like the Nolan trilogy with the Dark Knight and you saw these movies kind of going in a positive direction. And then we've also witnessed them. I don't want to say failing because there have been some many successes here and there, but been very inconsistent with this film universe. And um, despite its inconsistencies, it remains something of interest of mine, probably just because of the properties. And also, you know, maybe the next one will be really good. Because it seems to me that every time you watch one, it's like it gets this one right or it gets this thing right. But then it fails. It kind of falls on its face. But you still kind of like, you know, you still want to believe that it could come out and, you know, strike and do another Dark Knight quality type of movie in this universe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we definitely did grow up with Dark Knight uh, trilogy and all that stuff. Adam um, is is the uh, elder statesman of the show. Um, so you were growing up, what, when they were doing the serials, right? With like Superman 
and then Batman, right? Yeah, 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 the old school ones. Yeah, we used to have to listen to them through tin cans. I grew up on like the Burton Batmans and even mm-hmm. like the the Donner Superman movies. I uh, I'm a huge huge comic book fan. I think as we've discussed, DC kind of shit in the bed. I mean, the thing is that like their last couple have been really good, but they just can't find a happy medium in between the two. Uh, you know, between dark and light or comedy or however they want to go. It's like they try to make everything they do a, a vertigo sort of adaptation. Everything's Watchmen. It's hard being a DC uh, DC movie fan. Let's just put it that way. I don't know. I think since we lasted our DC episode, the last episode time we did this was right before Aquaman came out. And we both mutually kind of had fun with that. Um, and since then we've had like Joker and some other things like that. They're at least showing they're taking a bit more risks, which is why I'll agree that they're definitely sort of uneven but at the same time i kind of like the fact that they're pulling this sort of marvel less direction as it were of just like hey we're not gonna really do the universe thing anymore like we'll pick and choose certain things like say having harley quinn with uh birds of prey but not much else um connecting from the previous dceu experiment yeah. that they kind of failed on which i'm more for honestly i think birds of prey we kind of discussed this at the end of our last episode but i'm more optimistic about that i think it looks fun no i i, I definitely do too and, and but the thing is it's like they are still connected in a way i mean even at the end of shazam you got superman showing up and no, you know, noticeably I, without the head there there's no henry cavill sure, cameo actually the there at all. i mean it's the same suit yeah, but I like the fact that, like, they will reference some of these things, but they're not necessarily, like, a big contingency of, like, oh, this totally connects everything with Justice League. They're really, I think, phasing that out as time goes along. Like, I would be very surprised if Jared Leto actually shows up in Birds of Prey. Come on. there. As far as DC is concerned, and the DC movie universe, there is no Joker about Joaquin Phoenix right now. Despite, you know, how sad apparently Jared Leto was about that, which was just a funny thing. We haven't even, we're not even talking about Joker yet, but it's a little sad. fucking condoms to people than the prick. <laughs> or also just come up with that fucking character. Like, that's that's the best way to do it, I'm sure. Just uh, damaged on his forehead and everything. That's what the people wanted. I'm damaged. <laughs> it's very subtle. Uh, but anyway, 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 we're not talking about that particular Joker tonight. Uh, we're talking about um, our two features. Uh, first, we're going to talk about Adam's Good Pick, which was Swamp Thing from 1982. And uh, then we'll be talking about the Walking Phoenix Joker from 2019. That was my bad pick, uh, but I don't know if everyone else agrees with this or it's a bad pick. So we'll, we'll get into all that discussion um, in a bit. But first, let's start off with Swamp Thing. Government agents. Scientists. Soldiers. Master criminals. None of them belong in this swamp. Only one thing does. The Swamp Thing. The incredible adventure that grows on you or all over you. The comic book legend lives. So, uh, Swamp Thing came out uh, February 19th, 1982, written and directed by Wes Craven. Uh, it's one of his few non-horror pictures. Um, it's this one, and Music of the Heart, the, the Meryl Streep school teacher who does music drama with Angela Bassett. <laughs> his, his two big divergent things from the horror genre, though this one has definitely certain hallmarks of horror, especially a lot of body horror-related stuff with some of the monstrous transformations and such. It's not too far removed, necessarily. No, no, of course not. The thing is, I picked this movie because, A, I grew up 
loving Swamp Thing. I even like the sequel, which is, I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's fucking awful. <laughs> the Return of Swamp Thing? No, this is the first time I've even seen this particular Swamp Thing at all. It was pretty tempting Oh, you've never see seen it. The Return of Swamp Thing? Oh, with Heather Locklear. Oh, boy. Isn't that a Jim Wynarski joint as well? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Director of Chopping Mall, which we've covered previously. Yep, they bang and a flower grows out of her foot. I don't know. But um, <laughs> it's something. Yeah. But no, I, I grew up loving this movie. And uh, the fact that, you know, as I got older and I became a Wes Craven fan, you know, knowing that he did this too, in hindsight, really sort of endeared it to me a little more. But uh, I, I can be honest, now after rewatching it again, it's fucking hokey and campy as shit. But it's still so enjoyable. Yeah, because I think it's very important to note that this is 1982. So in terms of, like, big cinematic versions of superheroes removing, like, the serials or even, like, the 1966 Batman, only the first two Superman movies were, like, a thing, really. This is not even, this is before Superman 3 comes out, like, the next year. So this is very early into sort of, like, what would evolve into the modern superhero movie. Keaton Batman was just a glimmer in someone's eye at this point. With, with all that in mind, I at least found it to be endearing in its uh, ineffectiveness, especially considering, like, the Swamp Thing character, which we should probably mention a bit, Adam, is you were more of the comics person. I want you to give people maybe a bit of a history with Swamp Thing, given he's one of the more B-tier list characters. His origin in this is is pretty comic accurate in the way that it's... uh... He's a scientist, you know, he's all about, the way he describes in the comics is the green and nature and things like that. And then he becomes the Swamp Thing and the defender of nature, basically, in in a way not unlike Man-Thing from Marvel Comics to where he's so uber protective of the swamps, it, it gets dark in a way to where once Alan Moore took over like he would literally kill people for trespassing or polluting or burning he's a dark character in context and origin um i don't know that they pulled that off with this one too well well well, isn't this a bit pre because isn't that like mid 80s right and this is 82 yes yes it's just right right so that version of swamp thing which i know is like from what i've heard it's been more like he's actually so connected to nature it's like he's can sense and be in all places at once in the swamp kind of thing yeah that's right? that's what he's be- he still is to this point when he first started like around the era of this movie they didn't know what to do with him he he started off as like like a horror sort of type character but they didn't really do anything with him i mean he's swamp hulk in this movie basically right it's it's very much reminding me of like the lou ferrigno show in a lot of ways in terms of a lot of the production value necessarily uh but tori um you also saw this for the first time for uh, the auspices of our show and uh what'd you think of it that was fun i i didn't know what to expect really you know it ended up being more of like that classic 80s hokey hey it's a man in a rubber suit fighting another man in a rubber suit type of deal but i honestly it's just like it was a product of its time you know I, I liked everything about it i liked how campy the acting was i liked how poorly coordinated the fights were it, it's exactly as you said it's like lou ferrigno's hulk in the 70s you, you know it's like you, you're, you're get you know what you're getting the, the minute you see the militia or whatever that capture the guy and the most hokey way I've seen a snake kill a human on screen ever, probably. <laughs> like, <laughs> the, 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 the screams on that guy, like, oh, God, no! When the snake, like, basically bites him in a cut. There's, like, five times in this movie where you know they just, like, cut the Wilhelm scream in, like, like half a clip or whatever that they apply to. <laughs> it's just, like, every... <laughs> they know what kind of budget they had. They used it to the best of their ability, honestly. I can definitely see motifs of, like, Wes Craven, like, as far as, like, the transformations. He did a really good job with that. There was a moment where, you know, you get little little sprinkles of horror here and there. And um, I think it worked to its benefit. 
honestly. I, they got no complaints. Like, you know, other than like, oh, it's dated, but whatever. The movie almost came out 40 years ago. I, I, I had fun I, regardless. So I was glad to to watch this unique, good choice of, uh, of the movies today. No, yeah, I mean, because really a lot of the good choices when we were especially limiting ourselves to not Batman. It's pretty much like exactly. arguably the first two <laughs> Superman movies and a few sprinklings here and there of more recent things. But I think what I really liked about this, I you agree, I see some sort of motifs of Craven, but I think it's more because Craven, um, as we've talked about previously with his movies, uh, kind of likes to have people really live in their environments, and this is obviously the case where he has such a unique location of the swamp. Um, you can kind of feel that swamp thing kind of becoming more aware of his surroundings as his creature. Or even there's a scene where our villain, uh, Louis Jordan, um, just like walks around his house... And it's just like this weird calm moment before he actually drinks the potion to turn him into Man Bear Pig, uh, which is basically <laughs> what he becomes. There's just this weird, like, quiet moment before everything goes to shit, which Craven loves doing in so many of his other movies. Um, but at the same time, you can definitely tell this is his attempt to, like, be a bit more mainstream. Um, and sometimes that results in some arguably unintentionally funny things. I think particularly Swamp Thing's big assault on the fan boats in, like, the middle of this movie um, is... Um, it's pretty fun in ways both intentional and maybe not so. A lot of credit to Dick Durock, who was a stuntman and is in the Swamp Thing like gear the entire time. Before he transforms, he's Ray Wise, who you would obviously know as like Leland Palmer, a great character actor. Um, and he wasn't supposed to be originally Swamp Thing the whole time, the the stuntman. Uh, but when they kind of put Ray Wise in the makeup, and then they have the stuntman in the makeup, they probably realized, oh wait, Ray Wise is really short, and this guy's like a big hulking mess. This doesn't fit when we cut between the two of them at all. Um, so it's Dick the whole time. And I give credit to, like, I think he at least does as much as you possibly can in that constricting a suit. Oh, definitely. I mean, I, it kind of matches the fact that, you know, you're in a swamp, especially how, like, awkward kind of all the battling scenes are i guess or battle scenes between doesn't matter who it is whether it's like i said the guy in the beginning of the movie who's trying to run away or outrun his captors before he gets you know snake bit to death or the fight between man bear pig and the swamp thing at the end style isn't a thing it's this movie's really going for it's it's swamp thing you're getting the swamp uh, good or bad or you know however you want to view it so they put a lot of money in their location Hey, location, location, location. Yeah, yes, yes. Exactly. <laughs> the setting does all the work that everyone else is just kind of like, well, I mean, come on, can we stylize this? Can we really do it? Can we, right. can we stylize this man bear pig just, viol- just blindly swinging this Excalibur knockoff sword? I was just going to say, <laughs> the game fucking Excalibur. <laughs> <laughs> or William Wallace's sword for Braveheart. Here you go, just go at it. Even in that climactic duel, there's a lot of fog going around. It feels like low-budget Excalibur. Mm-hmm. And naturally, Adrian Barbeau takes a wound to the chesticle. It's, <laughs> it's, it's just so ridiculous. I mean, the suit on that thing, the head doesn't even match the body, It's but it's so fun and so stupid. And I do think Dick Durock, he, he's really good at it. Obviously, he's got, you know, early superhero suit neck where he can't turn his head at all. But, you know, he does what he can. You know, I mean, what do you expect? He's in this giant fucking latex suit in the water. It's got to be soaking in water the whole time, too, and just becoming a heavy mess. But I think it's fun. I like his suit. I think the the face appliance especially is really well done. And like you already mentioned, Ray Wise is always, you know, at least consistent. I I, I mean, he's fun in this. I I like him. I like Adrian Barbeau. And I think all the villains are gleefully over the top. I think also the biggest thing about the suit is all the problems really just come from the fact that they're shooting at the swamp in the daylight. 
And that notices a lot more of, like, the creases and stuff. I think, because, like, in classic movie sort of suit fashion, it would probably be better, like, the more it's cascaded in shadow, the better it probably looks. Uh, but this movie is mostly shot during the day, <laughs> which is more of the problem. Yeah, I would have liked some more scenes, I guess, in the evening between, you know, all the, the shots of the swamp or whatever. Because it, it did look awkward, obviously, but, most, like I said, most of the action scenes were filmed in the daytime. I've never seen a shootout scene where usually... You know, the person's running away with the handgun. They usually get a couple of shots in, like, you know, poor Adrian Barbeau gets, like, one shot in, thing blows up in her hand. She's just like, shit, and she starts running off. <laughs> I was like, I don't think I've ever seen that. <laughs> I've never seen a revolver just explode. Right, right. That's what I always like about Barbeau, though, as an actress, is that she had this real tough determination that even in situations where, like, she's technically kind of a damsel in distress to a certain degree in this movie, she's always very capable, and she always at least tries to defend herself even if she's not the most equipped for a situation. And there's more of a naturalism, I think, to her than some other, you know, sort of, like, actresses in a similar belt. I think especially, like, she has that tougher face that I think makes her have a lot more conviction, especially in, like, some of the earlier John Carpenter movies, and then here, I think that really works to her benefit. She's got a very stern look about her, and uh, her voice, even. Yes. It's not a normally sultry-sounding or even high-pitched voice. It's very matter-of-fact sounding and, and you know, very authoritative-sounding. Uh, yeah. But I want to get back on what you said about the daylight versus the day shots versus the night shots. At the time, it might have done them better if this was, you know, night shoots and everything to hide the seams. But I got to tell you, man, I'm so glad they didn't because I don't think this movie would be as endearing if it was. I think what makes this movie so charming and fun is that you can see all the wires and the seams and the makeup and everything else. Uh, If they were to try to hide it with night shots, I don't think it'd be as entertaining. I mean, I'm not saying, like, the whole movie necessarily, because I think the best moment in terms of, like, the non-campy sort of element of it is when he and Barbeau are stuck in that weird dungeon that Jordan has, and he's trying to, like, reach up so he can um, end up actually getting some sunlight, and he's kind of, like, defeated, and it's in mostly Cascade and Darkness. I think if you had, like, a, an even mix of some of that and the sillier stuff, I think it might be a slightly better movie. I do agree that it's still endearing to see him, like, especially fight that man-bear-pig outfit, which we can't emphasize enough how, like, that suit couldn't be saved by darkness. <laughs> that suit is way worse than the fucking Swamp Thing outfit because it's a freaking pig mask with, like, a lion's mane over it and then, like, a papier-mâché body for the rest of it. It's, like, falling apart as you're watching it move. It's the greatest thing ever made. No, that's true, yeah. yes. <laughs> it's, the <greatest> <laughs> it's the greatest thing ever made. Dude, it looks like you went to, like, a local, like, Mexican restaurant took some of the pinatas off the wall or something and they literally just wrapped it in mink. Yeah, they put out this scuba suit. We're going to cover it in brown, like, you know, wrapping paper that just soak it. Yeah, the transformation scene's not that bad either. I was kind of expecting something a little more terrifying because of, like, the constant, like, cuts between the hand reaching and growing back Mm -hmm. from the sunlight to, you know, how he was transforming and how, like, you were hearing all these weird sounds and shit. And then for it to just come out like, ah, man bear pig. I'm like, ah, okay. (laughs) Like, is that (laughs) And the the weird, like, these stages of it where it's like, oh, my hand's turning white. Oh, no, now I'm bleeding from my forehead. Now I'm in, like, a weird... A pus cocoon, and now a man bear pig. Like it's like the natural evolution. Sounds some chart I'm not aware of from biology class. And that was the one that was like yelling at my TV, like just drink it already. Because I'm like, it's been five minutes. You're just standing there looking smug, or sitting there looking smug. Just drink the damn wine. <laughs> Quit taking so long. <laughs> Quick, someone get that sword. We got it, Comic Con. Yeah. Give it to him. 
<laughs> Though I do really like uh, Luis Jordan, who was the villain in Octopussy previously, um, when he before his Man Bear Pig transformation is sort of like almost a Ricardo Montalban style kind of like casual evil. I I, I really kind of like that, even when he's doing something as silly as pulling off his fucking face mask, which every Mission Impossible movie post two has ripped off. Pretty much that same fucking technique of like, oh, your mask and the voice actually matches perfectly. Totally fine. <laughs> yeah, uh, Louis Jordan is he's Alistair Arcane, which I, as far as I know, he's still one of the main main villains in the lore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and his daughter, who I believe is who Heather Locklear plays in the second, is a major character in the lore, and even was on the new show, uh, Abby Arcane. Um, and I think she even has her own spinoff. I mean, that's how much they really care about that character. But no, I, I completely agree with you. He He's Fantasy Island, Ricardo Montalban, mixed with yeah, a little bit of Star Trek Wrath of Khan, Ricardo Montalban. Just over the top, but charming and just fun. And just that fucking suit. What the hell? <laughs> so, I know we were talking about, but that's what you're going to do. Because he's got to fight another monster. That's that's why. Uh, did anybody else notice the um, classic, not classic, but I guess a, one of the Wes Craven um, regulars pop up in this? Right, David Hess plays the lead of the militia, who was the lead of the murderers in uh, Last House on the Left. You are correct. You won. Feel better about yourself now? You know what? I do. Thank you for that boost of confidence. I really appreciate that as my friend. You're welcome. <laughs> no, but I do, I do want to say I do really like David Hess because I think he has sort of like this blue collar spirit about being like the lead of a militia have henchman with that kind of dig. Especially every time he like is on his fucking fan boats trying to stop a swamp thing, and he's just very confident about like, oh man, this green thing, I can clearly stop it with like my fucking guns and shit. <laughs> he's so very confident about that, and also he has probably the weirdest death scene in a Wes Craven movie, which is saying a lot. That's just like. Is his, like, skull getting crushed, or is he, like, being accordioned, basically, where it's, like, his spine's, like, going into his back? It's such a poorly shot sequence, like, I don't know how he died, and then cut to, like, him, like, on the ground, like, writhing a bit, and it's just like, oh, what what the fuck was this? It's a very awkward cut. It's just, like, it was just awkward, it's like, oh, is he just twisting his neck off? And then it's just, you see a guy, he's like, ah, I'm getting my head squished, or whatever, and then just cut to the next scene, it's just, like, twitch twitch and that's it everything worked to its advantage though honestly like all the camp the data like as, as far as my experience is concerned because like i said I, I had never seen this before um i actually haven't watched anything swamp thing related ever so i almost watched the sequel i mean it's interesting to point out because you kind of mentioned the show that was this weird mm-hmm. thing on the the new dc universe app thing where it was like their big sort of production that they were putting out just like swamp thing we're doing it right and look at fucking um Oh, God, I just forgot his name. The, the most recent James Wan's involved. Well, James Wan's involved. Mears Derek Mears. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Virginia yes, Madsen's in it. And they get the look of Swamp Thing so accurate mm-hmm. in that particular show from what I've seen. And then they canceled it right after the first episode was put on the app for weird, vague reasons of, like, something to do with tax cuts in North Carolina, it something else. It was budget. Dude. And also budget. Yeah, yeah, on that. Oh, yeah, I thought it was just, on, like, the WB or something. Or no, it was like or a DC like Universe um, okay. streaming service. Yes, the fact yes. Is not enough people signed up for it, man. They Apparently, Barbo is on the show too. She's like she, a, she had a guest appearance. Yes, yeah, she had a guest heard. appearance too. Yeah, yeah, they expected people to sign up based on the Titans and Swamp Thing show alone, and people didn't. And Swamp Thing's a huge budget with you know a lot of creature effects and locations and makeup yeah. and 
you know, actor salaries and everything. And so I think they were supposed to do 13 episodes for the first season and they ended up only doing 10. Yeah. They cut the order, which is never a good sign. And they canceled it. Oh, but my, but, yeah. My, my biggest question is just that like, do you think Swamp Thing can like really work in a modern context? Could you do maybe a feature or something like a more high prestige uh, TV series on like an actual network as opposed to an app, a television series. Yes. Or a side character. And I say that even to the, even though we already got two of his solo movies, but even like the Incredible Hulk in the Avengers movies. Yeah. He doesn't have his own thing. He's part of the team. Swamp Thing could work in that aspect. And and almost in the same way, you know, just a big bruiser creature character. But his own standalone, you know, I would have said that a Joker standalone movie would have worked, but they did it anyways. So, I mean, I don't know. I don't think it would work, but I, you know, who knows? I mean, because personally, right now, I mean, we already seen the Hulk get its movie and like twice and mixed results both times. But ever since Mark Ruffalo took over the role, especially in the Avengers, I kind of want to see a Hulk movie now centered around him because you feel like they could do it right now. Um, in DC's case, I feel like they should do the same thing um, in regards to like, I don't really watch the WB shows, but like if they could introduce maybe Swamp Thing in one of those shows, maybe a mini series or a mini saga and solely build him up and perhaps give him his own series or at least, you know, take a chance, um, something could co- something good could come out of it. Because, I mean, he's a beloved character for a reason, you know, I mean, they, they, they tried bringing him back. I mean, clearly there is if there must be an audience for this character. He's. You know, or he just needs that proper chance. You know, I just don't think on an app with 10 episodes that was probably cut from like 15 or 20 episodes is a real chance. I think Swamp Thing could really work in animation. Like, I don't know if they would do, like, say, a DC animated movie necessarily, because I have some issues with how they do some of the animation on a budget with those. Um, But I wouldn't even mind, like, an animated series that really kind of delved into that a bit more. Less so than, say, the 90s animated series, uh, which I've seen bits and pieces of, and the only thing good about it is that they did uh, the theme song as Wild Thing, but with Swamp Thing, (laughs) which is amazing. Yes. Uh, uh, (laughs) Well, the thing is, if if you're going to do the animated series, it's got to be fucking dark, dude. Right, it can't be for it can't be geared for children. I mean, it just can't be. Right, which I think they could do now, and I think might be even more beneficial on the streaming service, if nothing else. Because just slightly unrelated, but Birds of Prey coming out, and everything. I really love the Harley Quinn show on there. Yeah, I heard it was good. I keep seeing clips here and there, and it looks fantastic. I just don't, you know, it's like, I don't know if I want to get the whole app for just that show. Yeah, I mean, it's the first animated series to really kind of get the tone of Venture Brothers that isn't Venture Brothers, because it has a very similar aesthetic to that. Um, but it, And it also gives Harley a lot more new avenues, and I'm really glad they're kind of doing with that character. And fucking Ron Funches plays the voice of King Shark, and he's so goddamn It's funny. amazing. That's the only thing oh, that makes awesome. me want to give that show a yeah, chance. Awesome. Ron Funches is King Shark. But anyway, we're clearly getting away from Swamp Thing, so I guess yeah. we should get into our uh, closing thoughts. Then, Tori, as our guest, your uh, final thoughts on Swamp Thing. I give it, uh, I give it ten swamps out of ten swamps, so that's like almost twenty swamps. I give it. Oh, that's a lot of swamps. Yeah, yeah, wow. it's a lot of swamps, man. I mean, yeah. it deserves a lot of swamps. That's a whole Everglades. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my goodness. Uh, but yeah, it's like I didn't expect to have as much fun as I did with it. I thought I was going to be bored, honestly, like two minutes in, and I'm, and I'm glad I wasn't. Kudos to Adam for uh, for choosing that. Well, thanks, like, man. Yeah. <laughs> well, and Adam, speaking of which, your final thoughts on Swamp Thing? Uh, I, I just want to go back real quick to what Tori said as part of my final thoughts. Swamp Thing does have a following. I mean, he, he does have a fan base, but it's a very small, dedicated fan base. 
I want to say you might be on the button there, Thomas, with the animated thing, but I think a live action series with enough dedication could work as well. Uh, I mean, look at the boys on Amazon. I mean, you can go dark and just, I mean, and it's really good and really well done. It, it, something like that, I think, would benefit this sort of character universe. Uh, but to get to the movie itself, it, it's dated, it's old, it's early Wes Craven, it's Adrian Barbeau, it's young Ray Wise, it's, but it's so charming and full of camp fun. I mean, it, it's just, you cannot smile when watching Swamp Thing. It, it's still a fun, fun movie. And uh, like I said, when I was a kid and I saw it, it blew my mind, and now I just get pure enjoyment out of it. Yeah, it's definitely, I would say, in sort of the Wes Craven oeuvre, it's like right dead set in the middle for me, where it's got like some of the campy charm of uh, some of his, you know, funny, bad movies. Um, it also has some of like at least the honest sort of charm of like his, some of his uh, other movies where what Craven loved to really play with the idea of like these characters who might be monsters who have some sort of like uh, horror thing happening to them have an actual earnest honesty. And sometimes that can come through with some hokey dialogue or some other things uh, that might not be the best. We didn't talk much about a uh, young uh, black kid that Adrian Barbeau kind of adopts in this movie um, for the better. I think that's one of the weirder, like characters of like why we have to have this at the same time there's still enough charm that's going around here for an earnestness of not, nothing else not just with Wes Craven or with like the Swamp Thing character but just in terms of superhero cinema this is so early that you have to give so much respect for it doing what it could on the meager budget that it had especially compared to like the next year you get Superman 3 which had probably several more million dollars behind it and I would argue is the worst DC movie I fucking hate Superman 3 it's, it's, it's such like a complete vacuous hole of nothing. You think three is worse than four? Four has a lot more camp value to it that kind of like in a similar vein to this movie. Because Superman 3 is an unfunny comedy where it's like, oh, here's Superman occasionally in between really bad Richard Pryor bits. Like long, endless, endless, no plots going on. Oh, we have to watch okay. fucking Richard Pryor do his worst stand-up set ever. I literally got them confused, three and four. Yeah, uh, that was no, you're 100% right. No, yeah, 3 is four is Nuclear Man. 4 is Nuclear Man. Okay. Which is amazing. <laughs> but but in, that, in any case, once again, Swamp Thing, it's cute. It has some interesting ideas. Nothing else. It's a good artifact of that particular time for Wes Craven, for superhero cinema, for a lot of things. Uh, but we're going to talk about a far more recent movie in a bit. But first, uh, let's queue up an ad for an ESO show you could listen to right after ours. Hey, all. This is Drew Leiter from the Earth Station DCU Podcast. And I'm here to tell you that Cletus and I are back. Yes, we uh, got one of the shuttlecrafts working that got marooned on a planet called Mogo. No, not the Green Lantern planet, but that's a story for another time. We're here to tell you we're back. We're back to talk about DC News. We're here to talk about comics. And of course, we're here to talk about DC television shows. We're very excited about talking Crisis on Infinite Earths crossover coming up. So make sure you tune in to listen to us. We're right here on the ESO Network. Alright, and now it is time to talk about 2019's Joker. When I was a little boy and told people I was going to be a comedian, everyone laughed at me. Well, no one's laughing now. For my whole life, I didn't know if I even really existed. <laughs> is this a joke to you? <laughs> Uh, Murray, one small thing. When you bring me out, can you introduce me as Joker? 
So, uh, Joker came out October 4th, 2019. Not a few months ago, it feels like it's been years, but uh, it's just been a couple months since uh, we got our little solo Joker movie uh, as the brainchild of uh, auteur Todd Phillips, who you would know from the Hangover films and Due Date and so many other comedy classics. Going a bit darker here with uh, the Joker character from Batman. It's the highest grossing R-rated movie of all time now, uh, having made one point oh seven billion dollars at the box office um it's currently nominated as we're recording this and as we're going to be releasing this the oscars haven't happened yet but it's not been nominated for 11 oscars including best picture director actor adapted screenplay cinematography costume design makeup all that stuff um and uh, it's the first big attempt that dc made to make something outside of their dceu as we kind of mentioned um they attempted to sort of do a marvel thing with like man of steel and Batman v Superman and Justice League and that all kind of crumbled. And they're still doing some of these solo movies somewhat tangentially related, like Wonder Woman or Birds of Prey or Aquaman. But this one's completely outside of it. It's definitely a big risk, which, if nothing else, this was my bad pick. But I respect it for being the sort of true honest, like, divergent thing, an experiment for DC that really paid off for them. Um, and I have a lot of reasons why I didn't particularly like it that we'll go into, but the two gentlemen with me don't necessarily agree. I think, Adam, as you kind of mentioned, uh, you, you enjoyed the film, having seen it fairly recently. Yeah, I did. There's certain parts of it that I had to almost ignore in order to enjoy it as much as I did. I mean, honestly, on strength of Joaquin Phoenix's performance alone. And, uh, Tori, I know, uh, you are a particularly big fan of the film, right? Yes, I am. Um, so the first uh, night it came out, I, I went back home and, um, decided to spend that night with, with my family and we decided to go see it. Great family film, Joker, obviously. Yeah, oh, amazing family film. Fun for the whole family. All the kids went. You know, don't take your kids to see the next Toy Story movie. Just sit them down and show them Joker. Mental illness, everybody. But anyways, when I first saw it, I was just kind of like, I don't want to say like a mesmer mesmerized by it, but, you know, it was a little uneasy sitting there because like a lot of the a lot of the sensationalism that was going on before the movie came out. I mean, they had a cop like two cops waiting outside of uh, the theater we were seeing it in. But other than that, like sitting and watching it and just kind of watching this like two hour depressive hole of a movie, there was problems I had with it, um, I think. Todd Phillips' weaknesses as a as a storyteller really shine through this movie because I really put the strength of this movie on uh, its acting, which isn't just Joaquin Phoenix, almost the whole damn near the whole cast. It's cinematography as well, because uh, there's moments where I just feel like, you know, you probably could have cut like 15, 20 minutes out of this and it would have flowed a lot better. It really hits you, though, the, the entire movie, the, the film as a whole. Um, even moments where you're laughing, you still feel you have this feel of like, pity for uh for arthur as a character uh, of course the scene i'm talking about is when he's talking to shay wiggum and i don't remember the other detective's name it's bill camp that was the actor okay and uh after his mother uh, suffers uh that you know i think it was like a heart attack if i remember correctly when she's in the hospital and he's like walking away after smoking a cigarette and he looks so smooth and cool as he's doing it and then wham walks right into the door you like laugh initially because it's just sold so well but then you're like oh shit this is the Joker movie you you still kind of feel bad considering the fact of like all the shit that he's going through as, as far as like Joaquin Phoenix performance. And what I find more impressive about this performance is that unlike Heath Ledger's performance, he did not have a lot to work with because I don't think the script was really there. I don't think the direction was really there, but I think he really overcomes those weaknesses and makes you really want to, you just, you can't take your eyes off this guy. 
whether it's him falling into the depths of becoming the Joker or even in the beginning where he's just like awkwardly laughing at the wrong moments or uh, when he's trying to perform stand up comedy, how cringy that whole bit is, that whole like scene is. Even the scene where he's imagining himself talking to Robert De Niro's character, uh, Murray. But uh, even that scene just kind of like hits you like, ugh. There's just like a lot of moments where even when it's cringy, you still can't take your eyes off of it, but you still just get this like feeling in your chest. Like it's just uncomfortable, you know, it's an uncomfortably ugly movie. And I think it succeeds in that lane. All right, Thomas, take the gloves off. Take the gloves off, Thomas. Let's go. I'm putting down the cigarettes and I'm dancing. I'm dancing into this conversation now. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll say that you kind of mentioned some of like the sort of you know, release stuff that was happening with this movie where, you know, there were concerns about, like, oh, man, is it going to be, like, uh, have an incel uprising or whatever and some other just, like, back-and-forth bullshit before the movie even came out. And admittingly, like, I mostly was just like, I don't know if it's going to, like, cause a lot of, like, necessarily violence directly. Something in the back of my head made me slightly worry, though. Residue memories of, like, the uh, Dark Knight Rises shooting and stuff like that kind of put that bit of that fear into me as it was going into the theater. And then I watched the whole movie and I just kind of realized, oh... This movie, like, wouldn't incite that kind of violence and stuff because it doesn't really have any clear direction to point sort of these people into, I think, which is the biggest problem with it. Um, I do agree that I think Walking Phoenix is quite good, but I think it's sort of in this weird way where you're mentioning that, like, he didn't have a lot to work with. I think what kind of works about Walking Phoenix for me as, as an actor is when um, he's obviously very experimental. If you've heard anything about his interviews and stuff, he likes to really improvise and do interesting stuff. Which I think a lot of other directors like a Paul Thomas Anderson and The Master or Lynn Ramsey with You Were Never Really Here, which is like, I would argue, the good version of this movie, know how to like let Joaquin do some of his Joaquin-isms, but can rein him in at the same time. Um, but Todd Phillips is, quite frankly, not that strong a director, despite his nomination. Um, and I think he just let Joaquin do kind of whatever he wanted which results in, I think, a lot of, like, you know, mesmerizing things. I agree. Like, the dancing was apparently his entire idea. And obviously, like, all the dancing stuff that happens in the movie is just, like, an interesting quirk to his character that I think would work even better if you had somebody who had, like, a story and a through line that would make it work. I guess just the problem is that, like, what it seems that Todd Phillips kind of connected to with the Joker character is sort of the ability to do whatever the fuck he wanted and excuse any sort of, like, issues of plot or inconsistency of character or anything else with, like, fuck it, it's Joker. This might not be real. This might be all a lie. This might not be true. Which is true to, like, some version of that character, sure. But also, I think, makes the movie so hollow and empty that it just ultimately feels like it's more of a acting workshop for Joaquin, which I think makes it interesting, but not necessarily that engaging, especially on a character level. I mean, I, I don't disagree with the Todd Phillips assessment. Uh, but what I can say is being a comic book fan first before the movie versions, you know, obviously the Nicholson Joker, great, completely different version than the Ledger Joker, which is great. And now you got the Phoenix, but even back in the day, you had Cesar Romero, you had Mark Hamill, you had all of them. This, to me, the Joaquin Phoenix version of Joker with the dancing, the, the just batshit fucking crazy. To me, this has been the most comic accurate live action portrayal of the character, without a doubt. I think that's maybe a reason I'm so endeared to the film, in a way. Uh, but I, I absolutely do think this is the Joker from the comics, live action on screen. 
That I mean, that is interesting because it feels definitely like it's kind of diverging from sort of traditional looks of the Joker in a lot of ways. But what sort of is sure. like the the big thing that makes it sort of like the string accurate version to you? The the personality alone, to where you know he, he he's so crazy. I mean, he's so crazy. You don't know what's going to set him off. The laughing at one thing, and then the crying, the dancing, the you know random acts of fucking crazy violence. The even the thing at the end, you know, where he's laughing and, you know, you know, what are you laughing at? It's a joke. You want to get it. And he looks at her and there's no doubt he kills her. Now, did he kill her to escape? Did he kill her because she didn't get the joke? I mean, what? Why did he do it? That, that He's such a powder keg of a character to where there is no motivation behind the Joker in the comics. Legitimately none. And I think that is one of the big problems I have with this movie is they, they try to give him a motivation. I understand why you did, so you'd have a you know a, a thorough line plot. But other than the the Thomas Wayne thing, which is my biggest problem with the film, it's dead nuts on. I mean, he's just fucking crazy. The the close the best portrayal ever is probably Mark Hamill's animated, honestly. Because you want to talk about crazy and you know a mixed bag of emotions and up and down. But this is dead on, except for the the makeup. Other than that, even everything else is right there, other than the, the fucking Thomas Wayne thing. But to be fair, they've tried to do shit like that in the comics and even the movies several times. Where is he related to Batman? Is he? Like, well, no, stop, for God's sakes. I get why people have a problem with this movie because I, I get why people think it might glorify sociopaths or glorify this type of behavior or things like that. Uh, but I don't think it does. I, I don't think it does. I think you're looking at the story of a crazy person. Now, do they glamorize it? Well, sure, in a way, but we're also going to comic books if you go that route. where Why would anybody in the comics follow the Joker? He's always got a gang of people. Why the hell would any of these people follow the psychopath? Well, I mean, that's the point. It's it's He's charismatic. He's you know gets like-minded individuals, the downtrodden. Things like that. That's what he does. I agree with that statement, but at the same time, I don't necessarily think that maybe works with this particular film. It's just the fact that we're, we're following Joker here, obviously. There's no real Batman. There's baby Bruce Wayne, who he puts his fingers in his mouth, which is like the creepiest thing in the movie to me. But with the Arthur Fleck character necessarily, not removing like the Joker element, which doesn't really come into it until like the last 30 minutes or so of the movie anyway, where he actually puts on the makeup and stuff. You know, I think it's more a problem of like Todd Phillips is so like spewing anger and has this like big fuck you energy about everything going on with this movie that I'm not really sure what his motivation necessarily is, which might be accurate to the character, but I also don't think that really works for like following an entire story about a character who inherently is meant to be like somebody who works off and bounces off of Batman and other characters. But Tori, where, where do you stand on all this stuff we've been talking about? There's like stuff with the character that kind of bails out uh, Todd Phillips's kind of high fuck you way of telling this story. Like I can even say about the ending scene where he's standing there smoking the cigarette, laughing at himself. And strangely enough, it cuts to um, Bruce Wayne standing there with his dead parents, which, I mean, 
I, I feel like I've seen this on film like a million times already, but whatever. Well, but I, I don't know what you're talking about. Like the, the scene where like Batman's parents get shot and like the pearls fall down. I think that was a really new cinematic innovation for the film. Yeah. God, you know, maybe why I'm just close minded. Why the fuck? <laughs> why the fuck did they waste our time with that shit? <laughs> Especially having that like. I love how far they have to go to it to the point where, like, they're walking out of the not just any theater showing a Zorro movie, but specifically Zorro the Gay Blade to fit into, like, that era of the mm-hmm. early 80s. Like, we're going with the spoof George Hamilton Zorro movies, what they're walking out of. Ridiculous. But Tori, sorry, keep going. You were you were speaking. Uh, it was like, um, I've heard, like, some fans theorize on it, and I kind of see it in a way, but I feel like it's kind of like a cop-out for just kind of throwing that in there as he's laughing. Because, I mean, how did he know that that happened? Unless this is like in the future where he's already feuding with Batman and he just happens to be back in Arkham going through the motions of again talking to a psychiatrist or talking to whoever's working there. And then obviously the scene that happens afterward when he's walking away blood on on his feet, seemingly escaping yet again to be the Joker. And it kind of brings you back to the fact that every even goes back to like the Heath Ledger thing where he kept making up all these origins in the Dark Knight it kind of goes back to that whole thing where Joker doesn't necessarily really have like an origin, you know, in a way, even though he's not like narrating the movie, you are seeing this through his eyes. You are seeing it through his lens and he's not reliable. He's cause he's batshit insane. He's the fucking Joker. <laughs> so it's like in a way, Todd Phillips kind of has that cop out because again, he's not great as far as storytelling in this movie's concerned. I'm not even saying arguing for it. Like it's a good thing. It does make sense though. It's just I also just didn't need to see Batman's parents dead once again, even though I will say I do like the fact that they show Thomas Wayne as someone who is just a completely disconnected from reality ass, unlikable ass one percenter piece of shit, because I think that's honestly what should be (laughs) someone like him being portrayed, especially in that time, because I mean, even as the movie starts, everything's just it's garbage. There's garbage on the street. Joaquin Phoenix treats his body like garbage. This guy is like chain smoking after like cigarette after cigarette after cigarette. You know what I mean? And like you see a guy like Thomas Wayne saying, oh, well, you know, all those protesters are just losers. I mean, he basically without saying it tells them to pull themselves by their own bootstrap spiel that you hear from like Rich Jackoff today. (laughs) So, you know, that's actually interesting. It's just, you know, I didn't really need the whole thing again of like, are they brothers? Is is that Thomas Wayne's secret son, even though it doesn't really make sense because they look like they're maybe five or ten years apart in age, but whatever. It, you know, it, it, it feels like there's parts where it kind of all conveniently fits because it, there's ambiguity surrounding Joker's character or, or his origin of character. But I also don't really feel like giving Todd Phillips letting him off the hook so easily because I do think he is the biggest weakness in this movie. He let Joaquin do what he wanted to do, which in this case work to his benefit letting him just unleashing him letting him get like just loose and do whatever the fuck he wanted you know i don't i don't think another like you mentioned earlier like you know he that this didn't happen on the master this didn't happen on any of the movies that he's worked on where he is you know he probably has he has to be reined in a bit like you mentioned the whole garbage thing it's a recurring thing it's a reference to like the i think it's the 70s era new york garbage strike where like a lot of trash is just literally building up all over the place i feel like that's that's such an interesting metaphor for the movie because it feels like it is sort of like 
the foundation of it isn't even like the streets of New York. It really is sort of like the garbage of society is the fucking like groundwork for the movie. And I think that's a flimsy groundwork in general to like place the whole movie on because with any of these other characters that Walking's played in some of these other movies, it definitely feels like there is some sort of like actual foundational motivation that feels human there. The most he kind of has is with his mother. And even then they treat Francis Conroy's mother character pretty terribly throughout the whole movie. Um, she's very one-known in terms of like how much she adores Thomas Wayne. And then later on, the reveal that I had even more of a problem with than like the whole fucking Thomas Wayne, Batman, you know, getting shot and everything, the origin story, is the whole thing of like, oh, hey, we're gonna basically make this like reveal like the Joker's origin is that his mother um had a mental disorder that made her sort of like ignore the fact he was being abused by her boyfriends and then we're going to kill her for it. I feel like it's like so much more of an issue for me in in terms of just like oh we're really going to just like emphasize the one sort of interesting thread of his character at all is like oh his hindrance to being the Joker is him like killing his mother which on some level could have been like the tragic actual origin but we also let it him off the hook because like oh she let him get abused so fuck her i kind of saw that as like he was becoming the joker it's like you had to have him do something truly evil because you can as Mm -hmm. fucked up as it sounds you can have him murdering three potentially you know potential rapists that were wall street executives who love sondheim they, they love Sondheim. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, you, there's like a mixed bag that, you know, you can be like, well, I mean, you know, it's not good that he killed three people, but they were also, you know, pieces of human fucking shit. You don't have that ambiguity with him killing his mother, because despite all that happened, it there's no there's nothing you could do to justify it. Going into that hole of that, that uh, the depth were no, of no return, basically, you know, he's he's going to be the Joker. He's becoming the Joker. And that was what they used to set it off. It's I, I think that was kind of like the point of him killing his mother. It's not fair. It's not even right. You know, you definitely it's, it's definitely not a thing I will defend. But it is I think that that one thing I will give it give it to them there for, you know, making kind of pushing the transformation, like uh, like setting off the transformation, you know, like. That was, the, that was the final step, you know, to becoming Joker, killing your mom, which is really fucked up. Right, but you the know, setup is still giving him this weird sort of, like, reasoning for it that I was not a fan of. There's just, like, a lot of elements of this with this character where it's just, like, his sort of weird tragedy they're trying to set up for this character. is a lot of just weird, sort of creepy, disturbed behavior in a way that, like, admittingly would work for, like, oh, it's a villain origin story, but they kind of try and let him off the hook at certain points at the same time for it. Like, even the whole Zazzy beats fucking story, which is also groan-worthy. It's like, the moment he comes up to her and says, like, hey, would you like to come to my stand-up comedy show? The moment that happened, I found, I, that was where I was just like, this lady ain't fucking real. And they just keep mm. drawing out this bullshit about how, like, she's totally there, guys. I would say even before, where he's like, you were following me home. I she's, She kind of gives a thing where it's like, I like that. I was like, wait a minute, am I being fucked with right now? This should not be working. But they keep stringing that along and then have it as the twist of, oh my god, it's it's this thing where, like, uh, the movie wants to constantly, like, say that it's morally ambiguous, but also then give Arthur, like, these certain directions of just, like, oh, wait, no, he you kind of had a reasoning for that, a weird twisted motivation of sorts for it, that it feels like there's no specific motivation as much as, like, a bunch of singular events that immediately turn him, like, a light switch. I don't know, I just mm-hmm. feel like that's what's so 
like I, I don't like about the Arthur Fleck character even compared to a Joker. It's just that Arthur yeah. Fleck is immediately just like can flip on this dime that feels not necessarily like, oh, this is like engaging and twisted and disturbed, and more of just like this is a writing convenience at every turn. Exactly. It's like, oh, but it's the Joker. That's 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 how that's like the thing that like Phillips is doing the entire movie where he's like, yeah. I don't have to tell a story, it's the Joker. I don't <laughs> have to I don't have to hold back from all this fucked up shit that might not make sense. It's the Joker. I gotta show the the Wayne parents again. It's the Joker. Like it's just like that feels like that's the like logical reasoning to do whatever the fuck you want to do in this movie, which is is a strength, but it is also a fault because you know, like I said, I, I enjoy this movie. I don't know if I'll sit down and watch it again unless it's with someone who hasn't seen it. But I, I can't I didn't leave without thinking of the weaknesses. I was just kind of like when I saw it in theaters, kind of like the spectacle of it. You know, you kind of have that starry eyed look like, oh, this this was great, blah, 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 blah. But then you think about it afterwards and you're like, eh, nah, this was kind of stupid. Eh, this was also kind of stupid. Oh, OK, he's just doing this for convenience sake. It's still a good movie overall, but it's like, yeah, like the stuff that you've said, I, I can't disagree at all whatsoever. I mean, it was a taxi driver, king of comedy ripoff. I mean, it is. Right, 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 right. Todd Phillips is trying to emulate those movies without understanding why they worked. It just happens to work because he has like one of the greatest actors of the current generation and also a hell of a cinematographer. <laughs> like we can, we can definitely reduce right, this right. movie down to Davis. having De Niro play yeah. the flip of his King of comedy character. Where he's the Jerry Lewis role, even though exactly. for the record, that's my biggest casting problem with the movie. It's just that really? it's, it's, it's really only there for that particular twist on the King of comedy. Todd Phillips decides, Hmm, what am I going to get Robert De Niro to do? The two things he famously can't do that well, do interviews on talk shows, and then also fucking do live comedy if you've seen any of his SNL appearances. It just feels, see, so diametrically opposed to being, like, a fucking talk show host persona. It feels just like he's flop-sweating out there. It never, I never feel like any sense of even, like, an old Johnny Carson style with it. He's very stiff in a way that doesn't feel like even, like, the sort of cool, well, he's like an even 80s-era talk show host. It does not work for me whatsoever. <laughs> I guess it just works because I like I said, the acting really did win me over in this movie. So I I like I said, I agree with you again. Um, but I do think that his like I said, I think the the strength of his acting in that movie kind of overrode it. I mean, that and uh, like five seconds we get of Mark Maron. <laughs> See, the, cool. Adam and I even talked like post last week's episode about like Mark Maron would be so much better as a talk show host for this fucking even this particular premise. He would. I wish he did. Honestly, I wish that. they gave him something more to work with. I was like, come on, you got Mark Maron. He's he's actually really good. You, you watch him in Glow. He's a really good actor. Honestly, to me, it was just too much of a callback. Too much uh, wearing his influences on his sleeve. To have a De Niro. Now, did I like De Niro in it? Sure. Was he capable? Of course. He's Robert fucking De Niro. But it was a little distracting to where you're literally just doing a character swap. You're making the same movie, but just doing an actor swap. It's just, to me, it's a little ridiculous. You just kind of feel like De Niro was there when Scorsese was on board as a producer in the early draft of this thing. And then, you know, they kind of probably just had him by the balls and said, oh, no, you can't leave. Scorsese can leave, but you got to stay, De Niro. It's the society. <laughs> oh, fuck. 
Yeah, the we live in a society meme, though, definitely screamed alive in this movie. So I would say out of all the things that I saw before the film, that definitely shined through. The incel stuff or the alt-right or the white supremacist stuff, I'm not going to lie. I did not see it at all in this movie. I just kind of see a dude who's just really fucked up, troubled, and, you know, becomes the Joker. The the thing that really screams to me, sort of the most consistent element of it that weirdly fits for, like, the Todd Phillips metaphor, because before this movie, he briefly went on a screen about, like, oh, I can't do my traditional hangover old-school comedies because uh, we live in a society that's too PC culture, woke, all this other shit. And in this movie... It almost does feel like this is Todd Phillips really getting his anger out about the fact that he can't be his kind of funny. So he sets it in the 80s, he has Arthur try and become a stand-up comedian in this particular era. And even during his big Screed talk show appearance, Joker makes a you know the joke about the, the oh, you, I, your son died in a car crash and the one Dr. Joyce Brothers parody is just like, hey, you can't say that, that's awful. It's like, oh, you all decide what's good or bad in society, much like you decide what's funny and what's not. That feels the most like Todd Phillips having like a consistent through line through the movie, which is fuck you, I'm funny, and I'm going to be angry that I can't be funny in my traditional way. <laughs> Which is, like, really pathetic in a way, because, like, I feel like that world is just limited to Twitter, honestly, because even in the 80s, that, like, that joke probably wouldn't have worked in in real life in the 80s anyway, because of how fucked up it was. Like, I mean, like, people that complain about PC culture, like, I mean, God, man, imagine if Twitter was around in the 70s, 80s, 90s for half the shit people were offended for. There's so much stuff that for Todd Phillips, the guy of, like, the most successful comedy trilogy ever to complain about woke culture. Like, you know, I, like I won't lie to you. Yeah. Annoying people exist on Twitter, but it's also just Twitter. You know what I mean? It's social media. There's a power to it, but also at the same time, he acts like he couldn't drop the hangover four in 2022 and people are still going to line up to see that shit. Like (laughs) you'll probably probably have more complaints than anything than the previously. But if anything else, the movie, this more resembles because a lot of talk was also like, Oh God, this is so different for Todd Phillips. Weirdly, the most connection I found with any of his previous movies to this one is hangover three. Because if you've ever ever actually seen hangover three, it is not, it's not intentionally a comedy. It is much more of like a bitter, angry contractual obligation that turns into a very mean spirited, like Tony Scott action movie. And is not really a comedy whatsoever. And I think that the, this like they have this same kind of like angry like very spewing fuck you energy that I was talking about both of them have that but joker has it just more in this direction that we're talking about of like it has the auspices of like oh we are a very deep serious movie like particularly yeah. like the the score is oscar nominated and i don't think the violin scores necessarily like bad music not gonna lie, I really love the music in this. I thought thought it was used to its to its strengths. Yeah, you better sit down. <laughs> um, finding out the fact that like the the person who did the score actually like wrote this before the movie, and they used the score to like match the movie like on set. I feel is so indicative because it feels so much of like we're going to force down the like awfulness of Arthur's life by playing the same violin strings all the time in ways that, like, don't accentuate what's already on the screen, like a normal score would be, and in this case just kind of, like, plays out the movie, like, everybody loves the, like, fucking bathroom dancing scene. I think that is the ultimate point of, a word I don't like using in a lot of cases, of pretension with this fucking movie. It is. It's so, like, masturbatory. Yeah, like the that's that's the movie, the scenes where everyone was like, "Oh, that's is it so deep? He's expressing himself after a traumatic event through dance." And I'm just it's there, commedia like, della arte, Tori. Yeah, seriously, like 
I can't like that's the scene where I was like, you know, it's good to finally see it in full context after watching the trailer, but it doesn't make that any less fucking stupid. It's just like, I'm crazy. Look at me dance slowly. Ooh, <laughs> like just stupid shit like that. And I was just like, that was kind of taking me out the film, too, because I mentioned during like, you know, before there's a lot of moments that like are cringeworthy, but, you know, you get it. But the dancing afterwards, I was just like, can you just end this already? It's like, I don't need to watch five minutes of this. <laughs> just move on to the next scene, man. I get it. You, you, you're, you're sick. You dance. Cool. <laughs> Keep it go. Keep it moving, man. We got two hours left. But, um, like, when it comes to, again, like, that scene where he's talking about the comedy, it's, it's, it's just, like, a lot of the, the, the jokes that were involved, it, it, like you said, it does feel like this angry tirade that Phillips has towards, like, woke culture, but I, like I said, I just feel like you're just screaming into the void, complaining about a non-issue, like, even if it's, like, a tweet that has 50,000 people replying or retweeting it on Twitter, it's not the majority of even a fucking town or a city half the goddamn time as far as its population is concerned for you to be like, you know, to have such a successful career and be complaining about this stuff to be like one of the few people who like gets to do what they want at Warner brothers. They get like a blank check, like along with Christopher Nolan. Exactly. It feels so much just like on the seat of literal privilege. It's a seat of yeah. privilege, especially in the filmmaking community. You've been criticized for crude shit since the Gigi Allen documentary, probably. I mean, Gigi Allen documentary, uh, Road Trip, you know, all the movies that you even did before the Hangover trilogy, you know? And I mean, you, you were right on what you said about the Hangover trilogy. Like, the first one's happy-go-lucky. The second one's kind of kind of dark, kind of, but like, you know, mean-spirited. But then the third one's like full-on mean-spirited. So it's like, for him to complain about comedies, I was like, but you didn't give a shit by Hangover 2, like you don't even want to do these comedies you want to do war dogs now you want to do joker for you to be complaining about woke culture like come on dude you know without a doubt no matter what we think about no matter what anybody else thinks about it it is still the top grossing our movie of all time at least right now i don't really see anything that's going to trumpet for a while i mean maybe there will be something who the hell knows but captain marvel too they're gonna go really hard with it. They're gonna go real dark with that one. It just sucks when you're in the. It sucks when we're both in the middle because I feel like that's where you and I are because we're not like really. We just like the movie. We're not in line with the people who are like this is the deepest representation of mental illness in a movie ever, and other people who are like this is the incel agenda brought to the silver screen. Like we're kind of in that thing where it's like yeah, I think exactly. I think it's shot really well. I think it's acted fantastic. Uh, and another thing, too, I, I, I heard you guys talk about the score and everything, the violins or whatever. But that's what they did with Heath Ledger's Joker, too. It was the same wind-up cello violin score almost mm-hmm. any time he was on screen. I, I'm going to firmly disagree with that. because no, in, no, that's 100% true. And, and no, in terms of like the Hans Zimmer score, like there's actually a lot more like vibrancy with the different violins and stuff like that. This is like the long, ponderous, like it's a ballet kind of thing that's going on here that they're just just because both scores have violence does not mean they're like remotely similar as scores and plus if anything it's like i was saying earlier the whole point of like the 
Joker score, the whole weird situation was that they recorded it before the movie even was shot, and they played to what was going on on the screen with this one, as opposed to Hans Zimmer only accentuated what Christopher Nolan already put onto the film with The Dark Knight. I think that's the bigger problem, is that, like, there's so much more actual, like, base in what the film is doing, and the score's accentuating that in A Dark Knight, versus in The Joker, it feels so much like we are playing to this long, methodical, endless, repetitive score. I would argue it's far more repetitive here than it is in like, any of the Christopher Nolan Dark Knight movies. Mm, I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just throwing <laughs> chaos into this. I am truly doing the Joker well, I mean, stuff. Let's, let's, just, let's just call it what it is. I'm not a huge fan of the Nolan movies either. Right, that's true. Yes. Uh, I mean, we talked about this earlier with like those various different versions of the Joker. Obviously, I, I like most of them. Even I like aspects of Joaquin, but I think the big thing Joaquin doesn't have that these other ones do is like there is actually a motivation, even if they are in some sort of chaos. Like Jack Nicholson is creating chaos out of like sort of a joy out of not being a toady anymore for a mobster. With uh, the Heath Ledger Joker, he's doing it to try and turn people to realize that like whatever safety they have in sanity is completely gone. Like he has a specific mission there. He doesn't want to say it, but that is exactly his mission. That whole movie is to turn Gotham from being like this Harvey Dent loving like society that thinks that it's like oh no we're we're totally got all this together and really exposing that to people. That's what Heath Ledger's Joker is trying to do. And then Arthur Fleck has, like, 15 different motivations that don't really matter in any case. Because he's insane. I mean, that's the thing. He's, he's right. crazy. Right, right. I, 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 it was pretty subtle, Adam. I wasn't sure if he was insane or not in the movie. They don't emphasize well, that no, no, every no, single time. You're looking for motivation out of a crazy person. He doesn't have any motivation. He's crazy. He doesn't I'm, know what he's going to be doing from the, the next minute to the next. I'm looking less for motivation and more for something to, like gleam onto with a main character I'm following for a whole movie. Well, now I agree with you. Now, hold on here. Now, I don't disagree with you. I don't disagree with you that I do think it might have been a bad choice to make a standalone film about the Joker. And And I think I told that to you before the movie came out. This was very interesting, like, sort of the build-up to this movie. I was way more in sort of, like, the excitement for this. Yes. And you were very much more of, like, oh, that seems worthless. I don't know what we're doing here. And I was like, oh, no, it's a cool experiment. I want to see where it goes. And uh, in true Joker fashion, we have completely just have a well, no, black and white switch. <laughs> we haven't completely flipped. And I, I think, mm-hmm. and, and this is, you know, being self-diagnostic, I, I think that maybe another one of the reasons I like it so much because I did expect it to suck so bad. Right. But I, I didn't. I do enjoy the movie for what it is. I, I think it's. I don't think it's a huge failure. But it, it's just. It is what it is. Is it groundbreaking? No, fuck no. But it's okay. You know, get off my right, back right. about it a little yeah. bit. <laughs> no, and I, and I do want to emphasize. Just like at least I've been. I've been dogging on the movie a lot. I do want to emphasize there is stuff I do. Particularly, I think of the sort of nominations it got. I think one that feels undersold and I think really works for this movie is I think the makeup is tremendous in terms of like the actual design of the Joker and the hairstyling and even the costume as well. I really like this sort of take where it feels like this is thrift store Joker. Like right down to like the clothes look very shabby. The hair is so greased up with like what is clearly very party city style like dye. And even like the face makeup constantly shifts in a way that would feel like a continuity error. But in this case feels like someone who is not actually that professional about putting on their clown makeup to any degree. I think that's that really I think helps so much with creating the real like style and the sort of 
um, homemade design of this particular Joker, where Joker, for like so many other of these movies, except maybe The Dark Knight, has so much more like a put together style. This particular one feels very much like he is like just crawled out of like the same garbage infestation that we're talking about. I think that's, if nothing else, like all that stuff there, or with Joaquin or anything else, it feels like so many people are giving their A game to this movie that just has the vision of a hack like Todd Phillips. Which is, I think, more of why I have like such my issues with it. It's less maybe the expectations or what I would kind of consider what Joker is as a character. And it's just more of like all of these people are doing such a great job in pursuit of the vision of, quite frankly, a fucking hack. Just I don't see how that is just so Oscar worthy, though. I honestly think the makeup Oscar nom for this is like the stupidest one, even in the context of criticizing the fact that Top Phillips is nominated for best fucking director and adapted screenplay and best picture because he produced it. <laughs> He's a three time Oscar nominee now, Tori. We live in that society. <laughs> We do live in this society, but it's just like the makeup is just like, I don't, I don't see it. But I think it's, it's not just with like the Joker design necessarily. I think the whole like look of the movie, even like when he's not Joker, I like how much they have like different cascadedness of like his actual white makeup still on him during any different scene. And the way everyone, even like a, as someone as beautiful as Azzy Beats looks like shit in this movie in the best way. Like she looks so run down and believable of like a single mother living in like an 80s New York-esque city. Or Francis McDormand looks very much decrepit in that way. Way. Even like a Thomas Wayne, I love the fact that he has this like very put together, you know, sort of style to him in the way of like a rich guy, but he also looks like frumpy and unkempt in his own way that feels like he's just kind of covering up a sleaze bag that we've been kind of talking about. I like the fact that this world like really emphasizes on like the darkness that Todd Phillips is trying to put out, but doing it in a much more convincing way that feels like it's building the characters better than any single line of dialogue. So it's like, I, I, I get that then. I, I, I can see that then. I, I don't know about the Oscar nom still, but I, I get it. I, I, I will concede to that one. Uh, we talked a lot about Joker. Let's go ahead and go into our final thoughts. Then, Tori, your final thoughts on Joker. Flaws and all. It is a fun movie. I kind of like this idea. Well, actually, I will say full-fledged. I like this idea of having these sort of standalone, one-shot kind of movies that allows directors or people to bring their own original interpretation to a certain character. Like we can sh- we've shot on Todd Phillips a lot. The fact of the matter is he still made a competent film in spite of himself. Just overall, I still was entertained. I still saw this to be like a, 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 new, a fine addition as far as the DC universe, especially after all the blunders, just how this came together, especially with the fact that this made a billion dollars. You already know WB uh, Warner Brothers are going to be like, oh, hey. Let's see who else can we throw a millions of dollars to 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 take another random character and and make a a movie out of it just with that on the strength of that character. I'm not saying it's always going to work. I'm not even saying they're even going to be good. But it does open a new lane uh, for these interpretations to come out, because, I mean, it's kind of clear at this point, even with Birds of Prey, that they don't give a fuck about the universe building anymore. They lost the battle. They already knew they lost the battle. So if this is their new way of saving face, I'm all for it. So I think it's still a good movie. If I were to do like a numbers thing, I would say, you know, you know, strong seven, light eight out of ten. We don't do numbers here, Tori. We don't live in that society. We're joker about numbers. We don't do it at all. Oh, then it's a thousand and it's a thousand and seventy two out of five thousand and sixty three. That's more like it. <laughs> Adam. See, that's hard for me. If I'm rating this movie, I'm going at it three different ways. If I'm going strictly based on comic book portrayal of the character it's it's damn near a five out of five i'm going to give it a four out of five 
uh, only because I hate that they constantly try to shoehorn the, is he related to the Wayne thing, blah, blah, blah. But for his portrayal of just the character of the Joker, top notch. I think Joaquin Phoenix is fucking fantastic in this. I wouldn't even be mad if he won the Academy Award. This and cinematography of the Academy Award, totally down. The rest, well, come on. The controversy made this movie as popular as it is. There's no question. Um, Todd Phillips, as Tori said, he he made a fucking competent movie. So you got to give him that. He made a, not only a competent movie, but one of the highest grossing R-rated, the highest grossing R-rated films of all time. I mean, it's in it's going to be in the history books now. Uh, I mean, this guy who did Starsky and Hutch, for fuck's sake. Um, now, if I'm going at it on a film version of an interpretation of the comic books, then it's going to get a three out of five simply because there's just shit that doesn't line up. So if Bruce Wayne's a child in this and Arthur Fleck is clearly in his fucking 40s, so is this going to be the same Joker when Batman's in his 30s? Is going to be fucking 70? Makes no sense why I even do it. Uh, but if we're going straight Todd Phillips ripping off pre-existing material film, then it gets a one. It's a carbon copy. I mean, it, 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 there's so many things in this that are ripped and lifted directly from other films. Is this going to be a good stepping stone for DC? Maybe, maybe not, though. It's, it's a double-edged, <laughs> wink, wink, wink. I don't get it. What are you talking about? What's that reference to? I'm worried that DC is going to see the amount of money that this made, and this is going to be the image they follow now where i honestly think they should stick more to like aquaman shazam and potentially the birds of prey light and tone still honoring the characters not what dc did called elseworlds new origins new backstories for them but they were still the same character i'm worried that it's going to go that route and then i'm worried that's going to sink their ship because i think this joker is a lightning in a bottle one time i don't think a sequel is going to work I don't think any more exploration on this iteration of the Joker will work. I don't think copycats of this type of film will work. I really don't. Yeah, nothing else. Like, don't do a Joker sequel for all these creative reasons. But more importantly, I would just be scared about Joaquin. It's like, that is not healthy. (laughs) Don't do that again. (laughs) You look like a corpse in this movie. That's just not safe on that particular level. Um, But I I think I've, I've said a lot to say that I'm, like, definitely not a fan of this movie. It's definitely not like it's a worst DC movie, necessarily, not at all. All of my problems really have, I guess, more to do with it on, sort of, just as a film on its own level, as opposed to, like, being based on the comics. Cause I'm I'm way more for, honestly, doing kind of an Elseworlds thing. Because these DC characters are such, sort of, like, almost mythical Greek god-type characters, that I think you could do a sort of different version that really stands out for like a Superman or Batman, any of these other things. I think it would benefit just kind of like experiment a bit more with like the very tired formulas we've been getting. If anything, my, my biggest problems with this particular movie are that it kind of broaches being experimental and being something a lot more different, but then kind of skirts back to some either like comic book style cop outs or even like some of these references that we've previously mentioned here. This one definitely kind of wants to purport itself to be like, no, we're a serious movie. We're not a comic book movie, but still kind of like do some backdoors that aren't necessarily maybe even comic booky as much as just like, once again, Todd Phillips kind of doing his shenanigans that don't feel uncommon to his movies. Like, honestly, the Arthur Fleck character doesn't feel that different from Zach Galifianakis' character from the Hangover movies. There's like so much of this stuff that like, of Todd Phillips really wanting to make his statement of like, I am a serious filmmaker. I've got my big boy pants on. I'm totally not that guy anymore. It feels so much like an 
act. Despite all of that, at least so many of these people, they're like doing the makeup or the cinematography or Joaquin himself are like really trying to make this work and make it at the very least like not unwatchable as a movie. I give him a lot of credit for that. All of my credit really goes to anybody around Todd Phillips who's doing the real legwork to make this movie not a, a complete like cesspool of just fuck you energy that I was talking about earlier that Todd Phillips just exhibits and exudes just like spews out of him so I, I don't necessarily think it's just Todd Phillips to be given credit for like oh my god you made like a competent movie you had a lot of help and I can really see that here in a way that like if we were to say let him do you know a Joker sequel and have any one of these elements removed I think a lot more of the Emperor's clothes would be unleashed for me. But still, with all that, I respect it doing something at least slightly different for, you know, DC, and I do agree that I wish it would take more of the stance that Tori's talking about, the lessons from it, actually experiment and do, like, really interesting things that feel appropriate to the character, and also work to satisfying singular movies, versus what I do fear, I think Adam is saying, might actually come true of just, like, let's just do, it's King Shark, but it's, uh, you know, Goodfellas now. It's like Shark Tale again. <laughs> that's basically what it is. We're gonna make gritty Shark Tale. But, that's enough about Joker. We talk so much about it. Let us get into what we usually do every week um, at the end of our shows before we do our picking. At the very end, uh, we read some feedback from you lovely people out there who tell us about, like, hey, what are your favorite and least favorite things related to, you know, whatever topic we're doing? We post those on Mondays every time on Twitter and Facebook. And uh, so we have a few people, including uh, James Rodriguez, who says uh, Teen Titans Go to the movies is such a witty piece uh, with a clear love for the genre. It may skew to a younger audience. It has such bite and has a lot of laughs. Um, I also love Shazam, a great mixture of superpowered fun and more adult themes. As for least, Suicide Squad and Catwoman. Uh, Rachel Hillis says, uh, Best, Dark Knight, Aquaman, Shazam, and uh, the super underrated Teen Titans go to the movies. Worst, uh, Batman v Superman, some ex- some aspects of Suicide Squad, The Killing Joke, and Justice League. Bar- Brian Kane says, uh, Shazam stands out as a great pre-MCU-style superhero flick. Uh, I don't buy into the narrative that Aquaman is so crazy and silly that it becomes good. Aside from Patrick Wilson, maybe Momoa? Everyone seems bored. Also, aside from one or two big set pieces, I was disengaged that entire film. And then, um, hmm, this is interesting, a bit of feedback from someone named uh, Torre Delpina? Uh, says, uh, worst BVS and Suicide Squad, best Joker, Wonder Woman, and uh, no one's Batman trilogy. I don't know, Jacker, do you think he's full of shit? I think he's full of shit. He's a good man, this, uh, this Tori DePina. Yeah, we're gonna block his ass. <laughs> <laughs> he's a good kid, I swear. <laughs> I do want to say, uh, Teen Titans go to the movies. Um, I actually did see that. I thought it was kind of fun for what it was, though I will say... It felt kind of like a lesser version of what Lego Batman had done just the previous year, which I still really dig. Yeah, I, I enjoy the the Teen Titans Go movie yeah, I, I mean, more than the than the series. I'll they're say they're fun. You know, it's fun. Yeah, I, I I took it for what it was. You know, I mean, hey, you, you managed to make Lil Yachty like entertaining and not annoying. God damn! And they actually managed to make a Nicolas Cage Superman in that movie. Yeah, <laughs> Nicholas, <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah. Uh, you know, Thomas, you alluded to earlier, but I think the DC animated movies have been uh, 50-50, I'd say maybe 75-25, so a lot of mm-hmm. them are really good. Uh, like, The Killing Joke was absolutely atrocious. Yep. You know, we've talked about Shazam at length. I think Shazam is absolutely fantastic. I think Aquaman is fun. It's not great, but it's fun. That one is definitely one that, like, teeters constantly, where, like, I was watching, I'm like, I'm loving this, I don't know if this is working. It feels like it's a movie that's, like, barely kind of, like, taped together to work as good as it might, 
And I think that's what is kind of like the weird strength of it in a similar vein of like a Flash Gordon where I'm just like, I, this is like barely keeping itself together, but it's kind of fun with how boisterous it honestly is, I would say. To reference like what you're talking about with the DC animated movies, Adam, I will say that I haven't like dived into those as much because it feels like I've heard so many people say they're very kind of wonky. Um, the ones I probably like the best are probably the um, the Batman Year One, which I think is tremendous, and I think probably the best example of like adapting the actual style to animation. And then also weirdly the um, the Adam West Batman ones that they did, I think really capture the tone of that series in a very fun way, and also the, the exact style of humor. Especially the second one they did, which was the last thing Adam West ever did, where they have um, William Shatner as Two Face, I think is very fun. I think that one deserves a bit more credit. That one kind of got lost in the shuffle uh, not too long after West passed away was released. And I think that one really especially captures a lot of like that fun, spirited tone of the old 60s show. Yeah, I completely agree. Year One is really, really good. My daughter actually watched the two uh, Adam West Batman ones, and uh, those are so fun. They are so ridiculously fun. I need to see uh, those so badly. Uh, no, they're really, really good. The, that's where I think they've been hitting their stride, man. And to get back to what you were saying about Aquaman, it's campy fun. I think it's just campy, ridiculous BS. Uh, the soundtrack, though. Oh, my God. Don't get me started on the soundtrack. <laughs> but Pitbull in Africa. It's oh, like... God. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, no. No, I don't want to talk about this. <laughs> Uh, but, oh, Tori, what have you felt about, especially like some of the more recent DC stuff? I haven't really watched a lot of the a lot of the recent animated DC films. The only one I've seen um, that I can remember watching was um, uh, the what was a terrible one that Hamill came back for, the Killing Joke. Killing Joke, yeah, yeah. Which I was like happy to see because it was cool seeing them back again. But I was just like, this is so awkwardly slapped together as an adaptation. God damn! My favorite Batman film is probably the one that I remember loving and this is going all the way back to 2010 um was under the red hood i mean um yes, was it under that, the red hood yeah yes. yeah return of the red hood yeah return that, of the red hood that, which i love really that one. yeah like i think john dimaggio is an underrated joker uh, people were criticizing at the time that he th- sounded too much of a thug or or, or whatever like a, just another stage or another like henchman type kind of voice for the joker but i thought it fucking worked perfectly but um you know that was that's probably my favorite one but i have a lot that i've I have not caught on when it comes to the animated DC movies that have come what out. What about recently. even like some of the live action ones? Like, have you seen Shazam and some of the other stuff? I haven't seen Shazam. Um, I did watch um, Aquaman, and it was kind of forgettable. So, I mean, like that one was okay. The ones I've 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 had like the most enthusiasm for is Wonder Woman. I can't wait for Thunder uh, for Wonder Woman uh, nineteen eighty four. Right? Is that what it's called? Yes. Wonder Woman nineteen eighty four to come out because yeah, yeah. man, if they can if they can build on that, maybe they can salvage this universe. Be- because like I've I've loved the first Wonder Woman film. Like I got the I got the wonder and like joy out of that that I got out of like watching like the first Iron Man movie. Like like they have something here. They did it. <laughs> can they do it again? Again, I think they can. So. The thing that makes me so curious about that is especially Kristen Wiig as Cheetah is such an interesting choice. But if they really let her like wear that fucking stupid Super Friends era Cheetah costume and ham it up, I would be really on board with them doing that. And even also, Pedro Pascal is basically weirdly like Mexican Trump. It's like what he's basically doing with that character from like yeah, all he's Max Lord. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I really dig that idea. Yeah, yeah. I'm excited for Wonder Woman. I'm a little skeptical on why Chris Pine is back, but he's a clone. Oh, oh God. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, I... 
are, are you going full Poe po Dameron just like somehow Chris Pine returned? <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> the, early reviews, the early reviews of Birds of Prey are all positive for the most part. So I can't, you know, we'll see. We'll see. I I, I think they might be onto something with a little bit more of the lightheartedness. Uh, but who knows? Their, their track record so far has been a lot more mess than good. And that's why I'm really, really actually excited about James Gunn doing Suicide Squad. Because I think he can really bring a like more lighter sort of Guardians energy to Suicide Squad in a way that I think was necessary for that series. Honestly, like a dark fun that I wish kind of like was in the previous movie. I think that could really work. Um, and if nothing else, it's just like how weird that cast is. Or it's like, oh, John Cena, Pete Davidson, Peter Capaldi, <laughs> like the new people they're roping in. <laughs> it's it's so interesting to me. And even like some of the people they're bringing back, like along with, I believe, Robbie's going to at least be in to some degree. You got freaking uh, Kinnaman, of all people, which is weird. But then also uh, Jai Courtney coming back. Viola Davis as well. Viola oh, Davis, bring, yes. You got to bring back Jai Courtney because sucked until that movie. Like that's I was just say, it's the only good performance yeah. he's ever fucking given. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I was just like, this is Jai Courtney, huh? You impress. You actually can do things where you actually have like you know you you can do some comedic. You pull it off like really well. So. I give him his actual Australian accent. I guess that's the lesson. Just that, that yeah, I don't have him do a boring American accent. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, thank you for all that feedback. We also uh, want to thank some other people. Like, uh, we want to thank Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used on our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks to Emily Scarter for the art for our show. And, of course, thanks to Mr. Tori Tapina for being on the show. Tori, uh, you got anything to plug at all? Or are you going to be a chaos joker and not plug anything? I'm not anywhere. I'm everywhere. No, whatever. Um, <laughs> if you want to follow me on Twitter as I t- tweet and retweet stupid shit... Uh, you can follow me at TCVB91 or type Tory Nose Beats, X in place of the O, just like the producer knowledge. Um, if you want to follow me on Twitter, you can do that. You can also, you know, I have the SoundCloud linked if you want to listen to some, you know, very chill hip hop beats. That's your, that tickles your fancy. All right, and uh, you can follow us on social media as well, at DEDBpod on Twitter and Facebook. That's where we post our uh, stuff for the show and announcements, anything like that. Um, and you can also follow us at doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com, or you can also follow me at my own individual account at not the Who's Tommy on Twitter and Instagram. Um, and I also do some writing at uh, marianithomas.wordpress.com, where I do reviews and such, and I also write uh, satirical superhero news at truesuperherofans.com. And uh, look forward to Adam uh, dancing on your local Bronx staircase. I mean, nude. <laughs> <laughs> also to the Gary Glitter song, which is a lot of no. You shouldn't do that. You're not going to be able to see anything. No, a lot of bush on this guy. At least you dye it green to really stay true to the Joker spirit. Oh, it's just natural. I have, I have like, 300 STDs. So is there sort of the line where it's like, did he dye a green Joker style, or is that a swamp thing growing down there? Who knows? A little bit of both. A little bit of A, a little bit of B. Yes, yes. And for more great quality content like that where we talk about dyed pubes, you can uh, follow us on uh, Apple Podcasts <laughs> and YouTube, Spotify, Stitcher. That's our next episode. Double-edged dyed pubes. <laughs> 
That's branding reformatting, I guess, which I'm sure ESO would love to hear about. Um, and uh, you can definitely follow us on the ESO network and all the lovely podcasts they have on there. They have a DC show, which you heard the ad for in the middle of here. Um, and uh, why not dig into the archives, though, of our show and our Podbean feed for all the earlier episodes we didn't post on the ESO network previously. And uh, also, nothing else, if you were to just rate, review, or even share us around on those various different platforms, we would definitely appreciate because that gives us more visibility. Uh, but before we go, we have to do our traditional picking. As I explained at the beginning of the episode, uh, we like to do our picking at the end of every show where um, Adam and I either have two good or two bad picks uh, based on whatever topic that we're doing. And uh, we end up assigning each of our two picks to numbers between 1 and 10. And uh, usually the other would guess uh, a number between 1 and 10 to get the closest one to whichever of the two films. So we get our good and then our bad feature. Uh, but we have a guest like Tori, and they decide to go ahead and do that. They show off how good a dancer they are and then shoot awkwardly in the middle of their house. Um, which I do want to say, by the way, was probably my favorite bit of Joker in terms of like, the dark comedy. I think I really dig that bit. But... Um, this is a brief aside. In honor of, uh, next week is going to be the week of Valentine's Day for all you lovers out there. Uh, we are going to do an episode about, uh, romantic comedies, which we've done an episode about romance films last year around this time. Uh, but we decided specifically to do the romantic comedies, uh, because it's, you know, kind of something a bit different. But we like a good romantic comedy, don't we, Adam? A good one, sure. But when they're bad, they're right up there with bad comedies and horror films and just pure shit. Now that uh, we've established what we're doing next week, Tori, pick a number between 1 and 10 for my two good romantic comedy choices. I'm going to go lucky number 7. Okay. At number 8, I had, actually, this was a previous alternate pick um, that I was really curious to put back on the slate, especially because Adam said he hadn't seen it before. It is the lovely Billy Wilder film, The Apartment, from 1960. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. That's an old school. Okay, cool. I'm excited. I, I mean, I haven't seen it, so that's a plus. And then my other choice uh, at number three was a more recent one. It's uh, the uh, Camille Nanjani vehicle, uh, The Big Sick. Which I also haven't seen yet. Tremendous. Damn. Movie. Really? I know. I'm a, I'm a big fan of his, too, but I haven't seen that one either. Uh, yes, but now, Tori, for his two bad picks, number two, one and ten. <laughs> I'm going to stay consistent. I'm going to do seven again. At number eight, you got... Uh, the former Mrs. Nick Cannon vehicle, Glitter. Oh, oh yes. my god! <laughs> yes. I'm so happy. Oh, oh wow! Oh my goodness! Yeah. Dude, they had to pay her like twenty million to get dropped from the label after. I know. Oh, <laughs> yes. that's that's very okay. All right, we'll, we'll definitely uh, that'll be interesting. And then, what was your other choice? At number two, you had the former Mr. Jennifer Garner, Geely. yeah so either way fucked oh yeah yes well that'll be interesting double feature glitter and the apartment a multi-oscar nominee and the apartment (laughs) well i think on that note it's uh, time for us to scurry on out of here and uh soft shoe our way down the stairs everybody let's go i fell i'm still dancing yeah
This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping through Amazon.com or the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.